The Tree of Appomattox, A Story of the Civil War's Close by Joseph A. Altscheller The eighth and final volume of the Civil War series Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com Read by John Bruzes You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast Chapter 10, An Unbeaten Foe Dick's belief that he would not be allowed to sleep long was justified. In three or four hours, the whole Winchester regiment was up, mounted, and away again. Early and his army left the Great Valley Pike and took a road leading toward the Blue Ridge, where he eventually entered a gap and fortified to await supplies and fresh men from Richmond, leaving all the Great Valley of Virginia where in former years the northern armies had suffered so many humiliations in the possession of Sheridan. It was the greatest and most solid triumph that the Union had yet achieved, and Dick and the youths with him rejoiced. After many days of marching and fighting, they lay once more in the shadow of the mountains, within a great grove of oak and beech, hickory and maple. The men, and then the horses, had drunk at a large brook flowing nearby, and both were content. The North, as always, sent forward food in abundance to its troops, and now, just as the twilight was coming, the fires were lighted, and the pleasant aromas of supper were rising. Colonel Winchester and his young staff sat by one of the fires near the edge of the creek. They had not taken off their clothes in almost a week, and they felt as if they had been living like cavemen. Nevertheless, the satisfaction that comes from deeds well done pervaded them, and as they lay upon the leaves and awaited their food and coffee, they showed great good humor. "'Have you any objection, sir, to my taking a census?' said Warner to Colonel Winchester. "'No, Warner, but what kind of census do you mean?' "'I want to count our wounds, separately and individually, and then make up the grand total.' "'All right, George, go ahead,' said Colonel Winchester, laughing." Dick, said Warner, what hurts have you sustained in the past week? A bullet scratch on the shoulder, another on the side, a slight cut from a saber on my left arm, about healed now, a spent bullet that hit me on the head, raising a lump and ache for the time being, and a kick from one of our own horses that made me walk lame for a day. The kick from a horse, as it was one of our horses, doesn't go. I didn't put it forward seriously. I withdraw my claim on its account. That allows you four wounds. Now, Pennington, how about you? First, I had a terrible wound in the foot, replied the Nebraskan. A bullet went right through my left shoe and cut the skin off the top of my little toe. Leave out the terrible. That's no dreadful wound. No, but it burned like the sting of a wasp and bled in a most disgraceful manner all over my sock. Then my belt buckle was shot away. That doesn't count either. A wound's only a wound when you're hit yourself, not when some piece of your clothing is struck. All right, the belt buckle's barred, although it gave me a shock when the bullet met it. A small bullet went through the flesh of my left arm just above the elbow. It healed so fast that I've hardly noticed it, due, of course, to the very healthy and temperate life I've led. I suppose, George, it would have laid up a fellow of your habits for a week. Never mind about my habits. 
but go on with the list of your wounds. A great beauty of mathematics is that it compels you to keep to your subject. When you're solving one of those delightful problems in mathematics, you can't digress and drag in irrelevant things. Algebra is the very thing for a confused mind like yours, Frank. One that doesn't coordinate. But get on with your list. When we were in pursuit, my horse stumbled in a gully and fell so hard that I was thrown over his shoulder, giving my own shoulder a painful bruise that's just getting well. We'll allow that, since it happened in battle. What else now? Speak up. That's all. Three good wounds, according to your own somewhat severe definition of a wound. I'm one behind Dick, but I believe that when I was thrown over my horse's head, I was hurt worse than he was at any time. Frank Pennington, you're a good comrade, but you're a liar, an unmitigated liar. George, if I weren't so tired and so unwilling to be angry with anybody, I'd get up and belt you on the left ear for that. But you're a liar, just the same. You're holding something back. What are you driving at, you chattering green mountaineer? Why don't you tell something about the time the trooper fell from his horse wounded, and you, dismounting under the enemy's fire, helped him on your own horse, although you got two wounds in your body while doing it, and brought him off in safety. Didn't I say you were a liar, a convicted liar from modesty? Pennington blushed. I didn't want to say anything about that, he muttered. I had to do it. Lots of men wouldn't have had to do it. You go down for five good wounds, Frank Pennington. Now then, what about yourself, George? asked Dick. One in the arm, one in the shoulder, one across the ankle. I don't waste time in words like you two, my verbose friends. That gives the three of us combined twelve wounds, a fair average of four apiece. And it's our great good luck that now one of the twelve is a disabling hurt, said Dick. But we get the credit for all full twelve, all the same, said Warner, and we maintain our prestige in the army. Our consciences also are satisfied. But the last two or three weeks of battles and marches have fairly made me dizzy. I can't remember them or their sequence. All I know is that we've cleaned up the valley, and here we are, ready at last, to take a couple minutes of well-earned rest. Do you know, said Pennington, that there were times when I clear forgot to be hungry, and I've been renowned in our part of Nebraska for my appetite. But nature always gets even. For all those periods of forgetfulness, memory is now rushing upon me. I'm hungry not only for the present, but from the past. It'll take a lot to satisfy me. The briskness of the night also sharpened Pennington's appetite. They were deep in autumn, and the winds from the mountains had an edge. The foliage had turned, and it glowed in vivid reds and yellows on the slopes, although the intense colors were hidden now by the coming of night. The wind was cold enough to make the fires feel good to their relaxed systems, and they spread out their hands to the welcome flames, as they had done so often at home on wintry nights when they were children. Beyond the trees, the horses, under guard, were grazing on what was left of the late grass, but within the wood, the men themselves, save those who were preparing food, were mostly lying down on the dry leaves or their blankets, and were talking of the things they had done or the things they were going to do. "'I wonder what the bill of fare will be tonight,' said Pennington, who was growing hungrier and hungrier. 
I had several engraved menus, said Warner, but I lost them, so we won't be able to order. We'll just have to take what they offer us. A month or so later, they'll be having fresh sausage and spare ribs in old Kentucky, said Dick, and I wish we had them here now. And a month later than that, said Pennington, they'll be having a roasted buffalo weighing 5,000 pounds for Christmas dinner in Nebraska. Nonsense, exclaimed Warner. No buffalo ever weighed 5,000 pounds. Pennington looked at him pityingly. You have no romance or poetry after all, George, he said. Why can't you let me put on an extra 2,500 or 3,000 pounds for the sake of effect? Besides, you don't roast buffaloes whole and bring them in on a platter. No, we don't. But that's no proof that we can't or won't. Now, what would you like to have, George? After twelve or fifteen other things, I'd like to finish off with a whole pumpkin pie. And a few tin cups of cider would go along with it mighty well. That's the diet to make men, real men, I mean. Anyway, said Dick, raising a tin cup of hot coffee, here's to food. You may sleep without beds, and in tropical climates you may go without clothes. But in whatever part of the world you may be, you must have food. And it's best when you've ridden hard all day, and in the cool of an October evening, to sit down by a roaring fire in the woods, with the dry leaves beneath you, and a clear sky above you. Here, here, said Warner, who's poetic now? But you're right, Dick. War is a terrible thing. Besides being a ruthless slaughter, it's an economic waste. Did you ever think of that, you reckless youngsters? But it has a few minor compensations, and one of them is an evening like this. Why, everything tastes good to us. Nothing could taste bad. Our twelve wounds don't pain us in the least, and they'll heal absolutely in a few days, our blood being so healthy. The air we breathe is absolutely pure, and the sky over our heads is all blue and silver, spangled with stars, a canopy stretched for our special benefit, and upon which we have as much claim of ownership as anybody else. We've lived out of doors so much, and we've been through so much exercise, that our bodies are now pretty nearly tempered steel. I doubt whether I'll ever be able to live indoors again, except in winter. I'm the luckiest of all, said Pennington. Out on the plains, we don't have to live indoors much anyway. I've lived mostly in the saddle since I was seven or eight years old, but the war has toughened me just the same. I'll be able to sleep out any time, except in the blizzards. As soon as you finish devouring the government stores, said a voice behind them, it would be well for all of you to seek the sleep you're telling so much about. It was Colonel Winchester who spoke, and they looked at him inquiringly. Can I ask, sir, which way we ride? said Dick. Northward, with General Sheridan, replied the colonel. But there is no enemy to the north, sir. That's true, but we go that way nevertheless. Although you're discreet young officers, I'm not going to tell you any more. Now, as you've eaten enough food and drunk enough coffee, be off to your blankets. I want all of you to be fresh and strong in the morning. Fresh and strong they were, and promptly General Sheridan rode away, taking with him all the cavalry, his course taking him toward Front Royal. The news soon spread among the horsemen that from Front Royal, the general would go on to Washington for a conference with the War Department. 
while the cavalry would turn through a gap in the mountains and then destroy railroads in order to cut off General Early's communications with Richmond. We're to be an escort and then a fighting and destroying force, said Dick, but is quite sure that we'll meet no enemy until we go through the gap. Meanwhile, we'll enjoy a saunter along the valley. But when they reached Front Royal, a courier, riding hard, overtook them. He demanded to be taken at once to the presence of General Sheridan, and then he presented a copy of a dispatch, which he read. To Lieutenant General Early, Be ready to move as soon as my forces join you, and we will crush Sheridan. Longstreet, Lieutenant General. Sheridan read the dispatch over and over again, and pondered it gravely. The courier informed him that it was the copy of a signal made by Confederate flags on Treetop Mountain, and deciphered by Union officers who had obtained the secret of the Confederate code. General Wright, whom he had left in command, had sent it to him in all haste for what it was worth. The young general not only pondered the message gravely, but he pondered it long. Finally, he called his chief officers around him and consulted with them. If the grim and bearded Longstreet were really coming into the valley with a formidable force, then indeed it would be the dance of death. Longstreet, although he did not have the genius of Stonewall Jackson, was a fierce and dangerous fighter. All of them knew how he had come upon the field of Chickamauga with his veterans from Virginia and had turned the tide of battle. His presence in the valley might quickly turn all of Sheridan's great triumphs into withered laurels. But Sheridan had a great doubt in his mind. The Confederate signal from Three Top Mountain that his own officers had read might not be real. It might have been intended to deceive early signalmen learning that the Union signalmen had deciphered their code, or it might be some sort of a grim joke. He did not believe that the Army of Northern Virginia could spare Longstreet and a large force, as it would be weakened so greatly that it could no longer stand before Grant, even with the aid of the trenches. His belief that this dispatch, upon which so much turned, as they were to learn afterward, was false, became a conviction, and most of his officers agreed with him. He decided at last that the coming of Longstreet with an army into the valley was an impossibility, and he would go on to Washington. But Sheridan made a reservation, and this too, as the event showed, was highly important. He ordered all the cavalry back to General Wright while he proceeded with a small escort to the capital. It was Dick who first learned what had happened, and soon all knew. They discussed it fully as they rode back on their own tracks, and on the whole, they were glad they were to return. I don't think I'd like to be tearing up railroads and destroying property, said Dick. I prefer anyhow for the valley to be my home at present, although I believe that dispatch means nothing. Why, the Confederates can't possibly rally enough men to attack us. I think as you do, said Warner. I suppose it's best for the cavalry to go back, but I wish General Sheridan had taken me on to Washington with him. I'd like to see the lights of the Capitol again. Besides, I'd have given the President and the Secretary of War some excellent advice. He isn't jesting. He means it, said Pennington to Dick. Of course I do, said Warner calmly. When General Sheridan failed to take me with him, 
the government lost a great opportunity. But their hearts were light, and they rode gaily back, unconscious of the singular event that was preparing for them. The army of Early had not been destroyed entirely. Sheridan, with all his energy, and with all the courage and zeal of his men, could not absolutely crush his foe. Some portions of the hostile force were continually slipping away, and now Early, refusing to give up, was gathering them together again, and was meditating a daring counterstroke. The task might well have appalled any general and any troops, but if Early had one quality in preeminence, it was the resolution to fight. And most of his officers and men were veterans. Many of them had ridden with Jackson on his marvelous campaigns. They were familiar with the taste of victory, and defeat had been very bitter to them. They burned to strike back, and they were willing to dare anything for the sake of it. Orders had already gone to all the scattered and ragged fragments, and the men in gray were concentrating. Many of them were half-starved. The great valley had been stripped of all its livestock, all its grain, and every other resource that would avail an army. Nothing could be obtained, except at Staunton, ninety miles back of Fisher's Hill, and wagons could not bring up food in time from such a distant place. Nevertheless, the men gleaned, they searched the fields for any corn that might be left, and ate it roasted or parched. Along the slopes of the mountains, they found nuts already ripening, and these were prizes indeed. Among the gleaners were Harry Kenton, the staunch young Presbyterian Dalton, and the South Carolinians, St. Clair and Langdon. St. Clair alone was impeccable of uniform, absolutely trim, and Langdon alone deserved his nickname of Happy. Don't be discouraged, boys, he said as he pulled from the stalk an ear of corn that the hoofs of the northern cavalry had failed to trample under. Now this is a fine ear, a splendid ear, and if you boys search well, you may be able to find others like it. All things come to him who looks long enough. Remember how Nebuchadnezzar ate grass, and he must have had to do some hunting too, because I understand grass didn't grow very freely in that part of the world. And then remember also that we are not down to grass yet. Corn, nuts, and maybe a stray pumpkin or two. Tis a repast fit for the gods, noble sirs. I can go without part of the time, said Harry, but it hurts me to have to hunt through a big field for a nubbin of corn and then feel happy when I've got the wretched, dirty, insignificant little thing. My father often has a hundred acres of corn in a single field, producing fifty bushels to the acre. And my father, said Dalton, has a single field of fifty acres that produces fifteen hundred bushels of wheat, but it's been a long time since I've seen a shock of wheat. Console yourself with the knowledge, said Harry, that it's too late in the year for wheat to be in the stack, or anywhere else either, as far as we're concerned. Don't murmur, said Happy. Mourners seldom find anything, but optimists find often. Didn't I tell you so? Here's another ear. Harry had approached the edge of the field, and he saw something red gleaming through a fringe of woods beyond. The experienced eye of youth told him at once what it was, and he called to his comrades. Come on, boys, he said. There's a little orchard beyond the wood. I know there is, because I caught a glimpse of a red apple hanging from a tree. 
I suppose the skirt of forest kept the Yankee raiders from seeing it. They followed with a shout of joy. Treasure trove! exclaimed Happy. Who's an optimist now? asked Harry. All of us are, said St. Clair. They passed through the wood and entered a small orchard of not more than half an acre. But it was filled with apple trees loaded with red apples, big juicy fellows, just ripened by the October sun. A little beyond the orchard, in a clearing, was a small log house, obviously that of the owner of the orchard, and also obviously deserted. No smoke rose from the chimneys, and the doors and windows were nailed up. The proprietor, no doubt, had gone with his family to some town, and the apples would have rotted on the ground had the young officers not found them. "'There must be bushels and bushels here,' said St. Clair. "'We'll fill up our sacks first, and then call the other men.' They had brought sacks with them for the corn, but the few ears that they had found took up but little space. "'I'll climb the trees and shake them down,' said Harry. He was up a tree in an instant, all his boyhood coming back to him, and as he shook with his whole strength, the red apples, now held by twigs nearly dead, rained down. They passed from tree to tree, and soon their sacks were filled. Now for the colonels, said St. Clair, and on our way we'll tell the others. Bending under the weight of the sacks, they took their course toward a snug cove in the first slope of the Massanutans, hailing friends on the way, and sending them with swift steps toward the welcome orchard. They passed within the shadow of a grove, and then entered a small open space, where two men sat on neighboring stumps with an empty box between them. Upon the box reposed a board of chessmen, and at intervals the two intent players spoke. "'If you expect to capture my remaining night, Hector, you'll have to hurry. We march tomorrow.' "'I can't be hurried, Leonidas. This is an intellectual game, and if it's played properly, it demands time. If I don't take your remaining night before tomorrow, I'll take him a month from now, after this campaign is over. I have my doubts, Hector. I've heard you boast before. I never boast, Leonidas. At times I make statements and prophecies, but I trust that I'm too modest a man to ever boast. Then advance your battle line, Hector, and see what you can do. It's your move. The two gray heads bent so low over the narrow board that they almost touched. For a little space, the campaign, the war, and all their hardships floated away from them, their minds absorbed thoroughly in the difficult game which had come in the distant past out of the east. They did not see anything around them, nor did they hear Harry as he approached them with the heavy sack of apples upon his back. Harry's affection for both of the colonels was strong, and as he looked at them, he realized more than ever their utter unworldliness. He, although a youth, saw that they belonged to a passing era, but in their very unworldliness lay their attraction. He knew that whatever the fortunes of the war, they would, if they lived, prove good citizens after its close. All rancor, no, not rancor, because they felt none, rather, all hostility would be buried on the battlefield, and the friend whom they would be most anxious to see and welcome was John Carrington, the great northern artilleryman, who had done their cause so much damage. He opened his sack and let the red waterfall of apples pour down at their feet. 
Startled by the noise, they looked up, despite a critical situation on the board. Then they looked down again at the scarlet heap upon the grass, and powerful though the attractions of chess were, they were very hungry men, and the shining little pyramid held their gaze. "'Apples! Apples, Harry!' said Colonel Talbot. "'Many apples, magnificent, red, and ripe. Is it real?' No, Leonidas, it can't be real, said Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilaire. It can't be possible in a country that Sheridan swept as bare as the palm of my hand. It's only an idle dream, Leonidas. I was deceived by it myself for a moment. But we will not yield any longer to such weakness. Come, we will return to our game, where every move has now become vital. But it isn't a dream, sir. It's real, exclaimed Harry joyfully. We found an abandoned orchard, and it was just filled with them. Help yourselves. The colonels put away their chessmen, remembering well where everyone had stood, and fell on with the appetites of boys. Other officers, and then soldiers, who were made welcome, joined them. Harry and Dalton, after having eaten their share, were walking along the slope of the mountain when they heard the sound of a shot. It seemed to come from a dense thicket, and as no northern skirmishers could be near, their curiosity caused them to rush forward. When they entered the thicket, they heard Langdon's voice raised in a shout of triumph. "'I got him! I got him!' he cried. Then they heard a heavy sliding sound, as of something being dragged, and the young South Carolinian appeared, pulling after him by its hind legs a fine hog which he had shot through the head. It was fair game, he said, as he saw his friends. Piggy here was masterless, roaming around the woods feeding on nuts, until he was fat and juicy. My, how good he'll taste! At first I thought he was a bear, but bear or hog, he was bound to fall to my pistol. Landon had indeed found a prize, and he had robbed no farmer to obtain it. Harry and Dalton stood by for a half a minute and gloated with him. Then they helped him drag the hog into the cove, where the colonel sat. A half-dozen experts quickly dressed the animal, and the Invincibles had a feast such as they had not tasted in a long time. "'Didn't I tell you?' said Happy as he gazed contentedly into the coals over which the hog had been roasted in sections, that those who look hard generally discover, that is, seek and ye shall find. It's the optimists who arrive.' Your pessimist quits before he comes to the apple trees, or before he reaches the thicket that conceals the fine, fat pig. As for me, I'm always an optimist, twenty-four carats fine, and therefore I'm the superior of you fellows. You're happier than we are, because you don't feel any sense of responsibility, said Dalton. I'd rather be unhappy than have an empty head. Oh, it's just jealous you are, George Dalton. Born with a sour disposition, you can't bear to see me shedding joy and light about me. Dalton laughed. It's true, Happy, he said. You do help, and for that reason we tolerate you, not because of your prowess in battle. Has anybody seen that fellow Slade again? asked St. Clair. I'm thankful to say no, replied Harry. He came out of the southwest promising big things, and he certainly does have great skill in the forest. But our officers don't like his looks, nor did I. If there was ever a thorough villain, I'm sure he's one. 
I've heard that he's drawn off and is operating with a band of gorillas in the mountains, robbing and murdering, I suppose. And they say that a big ruffian from the Kentucky mountains with another band has joined him, said Happy. What's his name? asked Harry with sudden interest. Skelly, I think. Bill Skelly. Why, I know that fellow. He comes from the hills back of our town of Pendleton, and he claimed to be on the Union side. He and his band fired upon me at the very opening of the war. If you are not careful, he'll be firing on you again. He may have started out as a Union man, but he's shifting around now, I fancy, to suit his own plundering and robbing forces. We'll hear of their operations later, and it won't be a pretty story. They talked of many things, and after a while Harry and St. Clair were sent with a message to the crest of Treetop Mountain, where the Confederate signal station was located, and from which the Union officers had taken the dispatch about the coming of Longstreet with a strong force. Both were fully aware of the great movement contemplated by Early, and their minds now went back to march and battle. The climb up the mountain was pleasant to such muscles and sinews as theirs, and they stopped at intervals to look over the valley, now a great desolation, until nature should come again with her healing touch. Harry smothered a sigh as he recalled their early and wonderful victories there and the tremendous marches with the invincible Stonewall. Old Jack, as he sat somewhere with Washington and Cromwell and all the group of the mighty, must feel sad when he looked down upon this, his beloved valley, now trodden into a ruin by the heel of the invader. He resolutely put down the choking in his throat and would not let St. Clair see his emotion. They reached the signal station, which at that hour was in charge of a young officer named Mortimer, but little older than themselves. They delivered to him their message and stood by while he talked with flags to another station on the opposite mountain. Harry watched curiously, although he could read none of the signals. This is our only newspaper, and I can't read it, he said when Mortimer had finished. What's the news? There's a lot of it, and it's heavy with importance, replied Mortimer. Tell us a bit of it, can't you? Sheridan has left his army and gone north. That's one bit. What? It's so. We know absolutely, and we've signaled it to General Early, but we don't know why he's gone. That is important. It surely is, and he's taken his cavalry with him. Our men have seen the troops riding northward. Since Sheridan went away, the Union commander, whoever he is, has been strengthening his right, fearing an attack there, since he learned of our reappearance in the valley. Therefore, General Early will attack on the left. Correct. You can now see the value of signal stations like ours. We can look down upon the enemy and see his movements. Then we know what to do. And what have they on their left? asked Harry. Do you know that too? Of course. General Crook with two divisions is there. He has Cedar Creek in front of him, and on his own left the north fork of the Shenandoah. He's considerably in front of the main Union force, and they haven't posted much of a picket line. I suppose they're relying upon the natural strength of the ground. That's it, I take it, but we may give them a surprise. Harry and Dalton used their glasses, and far to the north they saw dim figures, not larger than toys. At first view, they appeared to be stationary, 
But as the eyes became used to the distance, Harry knew they were moving. Apparently they were infantry, going toward the Union right, where danger was feared, and he felt a grim satisfaction in knowing that the real danger lay on their left. But could Early, with his small numbers, with the habit now of defeat, make any impression upon the large Union armies flushed with victories? Harry wondered if Dick was among those moving troops, but his second thought told him it was not likely. They had learned from spies that the Winchester Regiment was mounted, and in all probability it was part of the cavalry that had gone north with Sheridan. But he thought again how strange it was that the two should have been face to face at the Second Manassas, and then, after a wide separation involving so many great battles and marches, should come here into the Valley of Virginia face to face once more. Mortimer and his assistants presently began to manipulate the flags again, and Confederate signalmen on a far peak replied. Harry and St. Clair watched them with all the curiosity that a mystery inspires. "'Can we ask again?' said Harry when they had finished. "'What you fellows were saying?' Mortimer laughed. "'It was a quick dialogue,' he replied. "'But it was intended for the Yankees down in the valley, "'who, we learn, have deciphered some of our signals.' I said to Strother on the other peak, Six thousand? He replied, No, eight thousand. I said, In center or on their right flank? He replied, On their right flank. I said, Two thousand fresh horses? He replied, Nearer twenty-five hundred. I said, Five hundred fresh beeves from the other side of the Blue Ridge? He replied, Great news, we need them. I wish it was true, but it will set our Yankee friends to thinking. I see, your talk was meant to fool the Yankees. Yes, and we need to fool them as much as we can. It's a daring venture that we're entering upon, but it's great luck for us to have Sheridan away. It looks like a good omen to me. And to me, too. We used to say that old Jack was an Army Corps, and he was, two of them for that matter. Then Sheridan is worth at least 10,000 men to the Yankees. Goodbye, we'd like to see more of your work with the flags, but down below they need Captain St. Clair, who is a terrible fighter. We can't hope to beat the Yankees with St. Clair away. Mortimer smiled, waved them farewell, and a few minutes later was at work once more with the flags. Meanwhile, Harry and St. Clair were descending the mountain, pausing now and then to survey the valley with their glasses where they could yet mark the movements of the northern troops. When they reached the cove, they found that the board and the chessmen were put away, and the two colonels were inspecting the Invincibles to see that the last detail was done, while Early made ready for his desperate venture. Harry and his comrades were fully conscious that it was a forlorn hope. They had been driven out of the valley once by superior numbers and equipment, directed by a leader of great skill and energy, but now they had come back to risk everything in a daring venture. The Union forces, of course, knew of their presence in the old lines about Fisher's Hill. Shepard alone was sufficient to warn them of it. But they could scarcely expect an attack by a foe of small numbers, already defeated several times. Harry's thought of Shepard sent him to surmising. The spy no longer presented himself to his mind as a foe to be hated. Rather, he was an official enemy whom he liked. 
He even remembered with a smile their long duel when Lee was retreating from Gettysburg, and particularly their adventure in the river. Would that duel between them be renewed? Intuition told him that Shepard was in the valley, and if Sheridan was worth ten thousand men, the spy was worth at least a thousand. The Invincibles were ready to the last man, and it did not require any great counting to reach the last. Yet the two colonels, as they rode before their scanty numbers, held themselves as proudly as ever, and the hearts of their young officers, in spite of all the odds, began to beat high with hope. The advance was to be made after dark, and their pulses were leaping as the twilight came, and then the night. The march of the southern army to deal its lightning stroke was prepared well, and fortunately for it, a heavy fog came up late in the night from the rivers and creeks of the valley to cover its movements and hide the advancing columns from its foe. When Harry felt the damp touch of the vapor on his face, his hopes rose yet higher. He knew that weather, fog, rain, snow, and flooding rivers played a great part in the fortunes of war. Might not the kindly fog, encircling them with its protection, be a good omen? Chance favors us, he says to St. Clair and Langdon, as the fog grew thicker and thicker, almost veiling their faces from one another. I told you that optimists usually had their way, said Happy. We've persisted, and we found that orchard of apples. We persisted and found that fat porker. Now I've been wishing for this fog, and I kept on wishing for it until it came. Harry laughed. You do make the best of things, Happy, he said. The fog thickened yet more, but the Invincibles made their sure way through it, the different portions of the army marching in perfect coordination. Gordon led three divisions of infantry, supported by a brigade of cavalry, across the Shenandoah River and marched east of Fisher's Hill. Then he went along the slope of the Massanutans, recrossed the river, and silently came in behind the left flank of the Union force under Crook. Early himself, with two divisions of infantry and all the artillery, marched straight toward Cedar Creek, where he would await the sound of firing to tell him that Gordon had completed his great circling movement. Then he would push forward with all his might, and he and Gordon, appearing suddenly out of the fog and dark, would strike a sledgehammer blow from different sides at the surprised Union army. It was a conception worthy of old Jack himself, although there was less strength with which to deal the blows. The Invincibles were with Early, and they arrived in position before Cedar Creek, long before Gordon could complete his wide-flanking movement. Both artillery and infantry were up, and there was nothing for them to do but wait. The officers dismounted, and naturally those who led the Invincibles kept close together. The wait was long. Midnight came, and then the hours after it passed one by one. It was late in the year, the 18th of October, and the night was chill. The heavy fog, which hung low, made it chillier. Harry, as he stood by his horse, felt it cold and damp on his face, but it was a true friend for all of that. Whether happy wishing for the fog had made it come or not, they could have found no better aid. He could not see far, but out of the vapors came the sound of men moving, because they were restless and could not help it. He heard, too, the murmur of voices, and now and then the clank of a cannon, 
as it was advanced a little. More time passed. It was the hour when it would be nearly dawn on a clear day, and thousands of hearts leaped as the sound of shots came from a distant point out of the fog. 